Today we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 9. No, actually we're going to start Matthew chapter 9. And we saw the last time a real great portion of scripture in chapter 8 where Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee and we made the connection or the parallel to calming the storms of our lives. And uh, then Jesus and his disciples went to the Gadarenes and they found two men that were demon-possessed and for a long time and they were, being, they were abusing themselves because of that possession. And we see the casting out of the demons and the man getting his dignity back. Boy, you can see so many physical illustrations or, or allusions to spiritual illustrations. And this is what the Lord does for us. He gives us our dignity. He wipes away our shame. He um, calms the storms in our lives. But we have to lay down our wills sometimes and let him do that. And today we're going to see more of Jesus' ministry now at Capernaum and the call of the disciple Matthew, starting with verse 1. So he, Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, the faith of the friends, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Wow. So he goes to Capernaum, which does appear where Jesus was headquarters, uh, headquartered. And they, you would see them go back and forth on the Sea of Galilee. Understand that it actually was a quicker journey to go across the, the you know, Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, than it was to go all the way around the perimeter. So that's why you see a lot of this crossing back and forth. Uh, but Jesus now is, is teaching. And again, I'm, I've said this before. I went into Luke's gospel, John's gospel, uh, Mark's gospel, and I try to bring all the information together and give you as much information and paint uh, the best picture that I can of what was actually going on. So Jesus is teaching, and he's presented with a paralytic man. Now, if you understand the trouble that the four friends went through, they carried him on a mat all the way to see Jesus. Uh, it was a crowded house that Jesus was teaching in, but these friends were really determined. They actually climbed up on the roof and they opened up the roof. Now, they didn't go up there with reciprocating saws and, and power tools, but what they did was, there was the roof was like thatched. It was layered. And they would remove the thatching with a big enough hole to take their friend and lower him down right where Jesus was teaching. That's amazing. I don't know what the homeowner thought of that, but I'm sure they fixed it later. But Jesus, after all that trouble, says to them and the, the paralytic, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. You know, first of all, he wanted healing. The friends wanted healing. And we also see that, or the question is, what does one have to do with the other? And I'd like to ask you this morning, how many times have we asked for something and God gives us something else? <laughs> it's okay, so more than, not just me, right? And what we find out is that we direct God in prayers, you know, we pray and we, we exchange some niceties and then we start with, oh Lord, this is the list of things that I want and this is the list of things that I don't want. You got that? <laughs> we almost direct him and forget who we're dealing with. But God in his infinite wisdom will sometimes give us something that we haven't asked for. And oftentimes when we pray and we're fervently in prayer and in the spirit, Sometimes the, the situation gets worse. Lord, I prayed, and I'm, I'm walking with you, and I'm reading your word, and I don't understand. More problems are cropping up. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, well, you did ask for patience, didn't you? You didn't specify what mode of transportation it was going to come through. But when we walk with the Lord long enough, we realize that that's love, that God loves us 
that we pray and we think that this is what we need and this is what we want, but he loves us enough to show us something different. So in forgiving the man's sins, Jesus really answers the question of why they're suffering in the world. And this is done very masterfully, if that's a word. Romans 5 tells us that when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death through sin. So Jesus flips the discussion. He's explaining to them how much more important it is for sins to be forgiven. That is of the utmost primary importance. And like I've said before, Jesus could have healed the whole world, and then they could have died in their sins. So what good is that? I would just say to you today, if, um, you know, if you're new to the Bible or you haven't really given your heart to the Lord, you need to be forgiven of your sins. I sit down and talk with Jewish people, Muslim people, Catholic people, all kinds of uh, you know, religions, and I ask them, what about the sin issue? Would we agree that God is awesome? Would we agree that he's perfect? Would we agree that he can't be defiled by sin? So how does your faith teach you to deal with those sins? A lot of them don't have an answer. And, and somehow we, we've come up with this, well, if I have more good works than bad works. I'm actually reading a book uh, by Andy Stanley, um, how, how Good is Good, or Is Good Good Enough? Something to that effect. Shout it out because I'm butchering the title. But the point is, he makes some really good arguments in there. Where's the standard? Where's the line? Uh, am I good because I'm the pastor? Well, maybe there's other pastors that are better than me. You know, where do we put that line? There is no line of demarcation because it's subjective. So that's what we look at. Forgiveness of sins is far more important, and he teaches them something through this. And it says Jesus saw their faith, the faith of his friends. Jesus was able to pick up immediately. Maybe the guy on the mat wasn't completely sold. Maybe he was depressed. Maybe he was in this position so long that he just didn't care anymore, and he gave up on life. But his friends loved him enough, and they believed enough to bring him to Jesus. It's not like he could have resisted them. So Jesus sees their faith. And we're going to talk a little bit more next time about debunking formula Christianity. Every time we try to figure out what God's going to do, he does something different. So verse 3. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. So the religious leaders think, boy, he's blaspheming. And remember, they're thinking this. And they would have been right had Jesus not been God himself in the flesh. Mark adds that they think only God can forgive sins. So check it out. We see that Jesus now can read thoughts, can read minds. That's pretty impressive. I was talking to one of the uh, uh, children's ministry teachers, and she said, I have regular meetings with the Jehovah Witnesses, and they are are adamant that Jesus is not God. And she goes, you know, I I, I find some really key scriptures, but, you know, and I was trying to lead her to some places to go in the scripture that it's the same thing in their Bible. Sometimes these cults, what they'll do is they'll, they'll dance around these landmines that don't fit with their uh, preconceived notions of what God is or their theology. But you you start to see that even through the the Gospels, you can't go far in the Gospels without finding out some semblance of God's or Christ's deity. Now, I'll tell you this. If somebody could read my mind, I know what you were just thinking, and they forbade him, it would give me pause. 
And I think that God does that for a purpose. Maybe it's not good that we read each other's minds. So there's a little privacy issue there. But Jesus could read minds. And verse 4, he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? To the religious leaders, why? Because they knew the scripture. They knew the entire Old Testament. And they knew what it said about who the Messiah was and even the time frame that he would show up in. But they chose to put it out of their minds because they knew what it would have meant to them. They, they knew what it would have meant that John the Baptist said he must increase while I decrease. And everybody should have done that. But they didn't want to lose that power base. So, of course, there was an, an evil there because uh, they knew what it meant for them. Verse 5, which is easier to say, Jesus says. Now, I'll tell you the truth. If you asked me, I would say neither. I can't do either one of them. Unless God specifically gives me a work of the Spirit and says, you know, Joe, just say it. He's going he's gonna to get up. I'm not going to attempt it. Or would I say your sins are forgiven? Not through me, certainly. So without the power of God, neither one is easier to say. However, probably what he was referring to is that it would have been easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody could really tell. It's not tangible. However, when he said rise and the guy gets up, well, that was tangible. That we could see with our senses. Arise, verse 6. Wow. Number one. He can read minds, number two. He can make a paralytic walk. And if those two are true, then probably he could forgive sins. Then the third must be true. And how could they still not believe? But is it any different today? Listen, if you don't know the Lord and you are around believers long enough, you will see the power of God in a believer's life if they're really walking with the Lord. It's evident. You will see that. Even if it's just simple as a change. How many testimonies do we hear? Peter Parkas, who's going to come back in June. The guy was addicted to drugs. He was, uh, he was out on the street. He was homeless. Now he's a pastor. Amazing. Amazing testimony in this man's life. So that in itself is a miracle. It's a miracle. I remember when my wife and I were dating, the two of us, it was a, a volatile relationship. And even our closest friends would murmur and say, hey, they're not going to make it long. Now, when we sometimes see friends that we haven't seen in years, they look at us, well, you're, 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 you're married? <laughs> How long? 15 years? Yes, and we actually love each other. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I remember one time we had a, a little argument. Uh, she came to visit me at the police station, and as we were arguing by accident, I keyed my mic. So all the South Brunswick police got to hear about five seconds of our argument. <laughs> you know? Oof, that was embarrassing. One of the officers came up to me and said, you know, Maybe you should keep your personal life off the air. <laughs> but God did a great work. Nothing short of a miracle. Marriages getting better, people kicking drugs, uh, change, change of life, you know, starting ministries, amazing. And this is what the power of God can do. So what is it going to take for you to believe? How much do you have to see? Verse 7. And then he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. So the key to all this is really that God was glorified, that the Father was glorified. And some struggle with this. Yeah, but wasn't he God the Son? Yes. But there was continuity in leadership. He glorified the Father. And Jesus said in uh, John's Gospel that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of me. How can you tell if something is really a work of the Holy Spirit? Well, that work will testify of Jesus Christ. If the so-called work of the Spirit is glorifying man and Jesus isn't in it, then it's not a work of the Holy Spirit. There's 
a, a single focus and there's continuity in leadership. You know, we don't have the right to glorify ourselves. Some ministries are self-glorifying. Some individuals are self-glorifying. Some serve the Lord with bad motives. Right? Some serve the Lord because maybe it's a sense of power when they have others under them. The disciples fell into that trap. And Jesus rebuked them sternly for that. We have no right, and I've heard this expression, to steal God's glory. It's no, no right to steal God's glory. So he, he continues on in verse 9. Then as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So Jesus passes on. And Matthew has either even seen some of the things that Jesus did or heard about it, but he has some familiarity with Jesus, and he leaves all to follow Jesus. Now, I went back for a moment, I studied the scripture and the other gospels, and I went into Roman history, and you, you find that uh, the Roman tax system actually was very intricate, sort of like New Jersey, they had a tax for everything. And Matthew was either A, uh, in a toll office or toll booth where uh, there would be certain uh, roads that Israel was kind of like the center of the Middle East at times, through Egypt and Syria uh, and the Mediterranean Sea and, and what's now is Iran and Iraq, uh, Babylon. But as people would pass through, that was a great opportunity to take money because there was a well-traveled road. He also could have been a customs official. But that's really not the issue. The problem is that Matthew was Jewish, and the Jews hated the Roman oppressors. And to make matters worse, there was a culture of corruption. You could read Josephus, you could read any of these historians, and they'll tell you that they would take the tax and take a little more for themselves. So there was graft. And again, do we see much of a change? Do you take a man, a few men, and you, or women, men and women, and you put them over uh, you know, a tax pool, you put them over a few million dollars and watch to see how corruption starts to get into that. Uh, New Jersey, as other states have often said that New Jersey has some of the most corrupt politicians and we keep voting them back in. It's like we have a high tolerance for that corruption. All right, we, I lost the Holy Spirit here. Now I'm on to my own. Let's go back to the story. Okay, where was I? Continue. Even the rabbis uh, consider Jews apostate or defiled if they would work for the Romans in this capacity. And the challenge now is to take, check this out, is to take Matthew, who really was a turncoat, and integrate him in with the rest of the disciples who were you know, all charged up for the Messiah. That must have been very interesting. And keep the rest of them from not killing Matthew. So we see that Jesus was the ultimate leader. He could bring any groups together, and he could integrate them and get them to follow the same cause. We also find the humility in Matthew. In essence, this is an autobiography in this one verse. And what is he saying? He's matter of fact. This is, he speaks about himself in the third person. He sees Jesus, he gets up and he follows him. That's it. What would we say about ourselves? Would we need more verses if we were to put ourselves into the story? And the Lord passed by me, and when he called me to follow him, the heavens opened up, the birds started chirping, and the sun shone. Not Matthew. He's very humble about it. But the main point to convey in this is that after observing Christ, Matthew makes the logical decision and the spiritual decision to follow Christ. Now understand the sacrifice. Uh, he just gets up. What does he say? Maybe he's got a partner. Hey, it's all yours. I'm, I'm gone. I'm going to follow the Messiah. 
Think about that sacrifice. And I've often said when you're called to leadership or you're called to be a pastor or you're called to uh, some type of, you know, even outside of church, uh, God will call us to sacrifice. And it really is a question of our heart. Sometimes we say, well, Lord, I want everything that I have now and I want to be following you. You don't really see that reflected in the scripture. Even Moses. Moses could have been the second in command and when Pharaoh died, he could have been the Pharaoh. But what did he do? He chose to follow the Lord. So think about that sacrifice. I've heard it said that God was going to use a meticulous record-keeping tax man to record one of the four Gospels. Now, did he know while he was living in sin that this was going to happen? That God was going to use him to bring salvation to the world? Probably didn't. That's how good God is. I would ask you, what are you good at? How can the Lord use you to glorify his kingdom? How can he use you to partner with him in his fields to reach the unsaved? He can do it. Let me just clear something up. Not only is there a sacrifice, but he often has to refine us. He often has to humble us. He often has to hone our abilities and chisel off the rough edges to make us usable. Ah, now I'm ready for what he's going to do with us in our life. That's a process. Verse 10. And so it was as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which was taken from the Old Testament, Hosea 6, 6. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The way I look at this is that, and you know, Luke's gospel gives us a little bit more, but Matthew has a feast and invites all his unsaved friends. You know, I did that. Uh, I remember after becoming born again and, and trying to talk to my friends and my coworkers, I had some success, but you know, it, it was hard for me because I didn't know everything. I didn't know enough, and, uh, but I trusted the Lord, and, and it, did, it was beneficial. But I remember one time my wife and I had a big barbecue with all my friends at work, and we invited them all over, and I, I called my then pastor, Pastor Lloyd, and said, listen, I really want you to come. And he was game for it. He was excited. You know, so he, he, I just was watching him intermingle and try to talk to them and stuff. But it's really a neat thing. And I tell you the truth, I would be more than happy if I'm not too busy and I'm not working to come to an event where there's the unsaved and just start talking to them, just start mingling with them, just start you know, trying the best I can to teach them the things of eternal life and salvation. I love it. I remember um, uh, Pastor Chris uh, McCarrick, he said to me once, he goes, you know, sometimes I just like to get a part-time job at a convenience store and just start ministering to the world. Come out of where the, the Christian bubble and just go out there and just start ministering to the unsaved. To have a heart for the lost, that should be our desire. We shouldn't be in such a hurry to, when we become Christians, to ditch our old friends. Now, if your old friends are not um, understanding, if they're, you're being ridiculed and you know, they're really not being your friends because they don't respect your newfound faith, that might be an issue. Or if every time you're with them, they get you to do things that you would not want to do, that's an issue. But not to be in such a hurry to 
uh, get rid of our old friends and just immerse into the Christian culture. Maybe God is going to use us where we are, in our jobs, in our social groups, right? in our families, to reach the lost. And what's really neat about this is today there's a, a reformulation about how we reach the lost. And what we do is, well, what we shouldn't do is uh, employ a lot of worldly methods, methods to do what they do to reach them. Mm, that's crossing the line. I don't see Jesus uh, compromising when he dealt with the unsaved. Because then what is attractive about him if he's acting and behaving like them? Then they think, well, gee, I can get to heaven this way too. Uh-uh. Jesus didn't compromise when he would immerse himself. And that's something that we have to understand. Be careful of that compromise. Pastor Anthony taught a great uh, men's Bible study yesterday on influence. Are we influencing others for good? Or are we allowing others to influence us for bad? And those are questions that we have to ask ourselves. Verse 11, we see in Luke's gospel uh, that the Pharisees murmured. They didn't just say it. They murmured. They complained, they gossiped to the disciples, they put a bug in their ear. And it's not surprising. Every time God is at work doing something, and every time there's a work of the Lord, Satan is always on the heels to try to tear it down. That's what he does, that's his MO. You see, all throughout Christ's ministry, he wasn't far behind trying to figure out how to ruin what God was doing. But the question is, will we let him? Sometimes it'll come through the religious, like here. Sometimes it'll come through the church. Imagine the dialogue between the Pharisees all of a sudden just kind of sauntering over to the disciples and Jesus is out there talking to some of the tax collectors and sinners and the, the Pharisees saying, uh, James, John, come over here for a minute. You know, I don't get this. Um, those uh, Romans and the tax collectors, I know you're nice Jewish boys. They've been ripping us off for years. You know, your father and his farm and, and they're taxing them more. The judgment, I'm not so sure of the judgment. Are you sure this guy could be the Messiah? Seeds of division. Now, how long did it take for that conversation to take place? 10, 15 seconds? Anyone time it? You see, there are those in the world, there's two types of people in the world. There are those in the world that take years, men and women, to build foundations, to build strong foundations in the Lord, to build ties, to start home groups, to start uh, a work of the Spirit, uh, to bring people to Christ, to mature them. And that takes years. Building is always taking longer to do than something that's knocked down. Look at uh, you know, homes, uh, how long it takes to build a home, and then uh, if it's condemned with the wrecking ball and the bulldozers, it takes a lot less time to knock that building down. So there are. Are we builders or are we tearers down? Do we spend our time trying to build for the Lord or sowed seeds of division? And there's a place for criticism. You know, the Pharisees should have gone to the Lord directly. Matthew 18 speaks about that, but they didn't. Verse 12, Jesus, however, injects himself into the conversation. Remember, he can read minds. He could hear whispers from, you know, <laughs> a mile away, whatever the case may be. And he interjects himself and protects his disciples. He's inoculating them against the this, this, this seeds of division. He replies to the accusation. And basically what he tells them, and it makes sense, is that, listen, those who are righteous and are following the Lord, following God, do they need a physician? But those who are sick, those who are spiritually sick, and I've come for them. I didn't just come to call the notable. I called for those that have been rejected by society. 
the religious leaders at the time had nothing to do with these folks. And you can see that today. I talked about the, the heroin use being spiked. You know, how many are reaching out to them? How many are reaching out to the homosexual community? I've talked to plenty of uh, homosexuals, and they think that Christians hate them. Now, listen, there's a militant movement that I don't agree with, but the average person, one-on-one, is there anybody that we should not talk to and minister to? I, I don't, I, we're supposed to minister to everyone. Certainly, it was Jesus' ex- example. Now, it doesn't mean they're all going to come. It doesn't mean they're all going to get saved. But it does mean that we should follow what Jesus is saying here. Verse 13, he says, now this is, certainly could have taken as a, a conviction or an insult but to the religious leaders. But go and learn what this scripture means. right? These guys knew the word of God, and he's telling them, you guys don't understand what this means. And he's done that a few times. You wonder why they wanted to have him crucified. Hosea 6.6. 6. Let's go to the context of that scripture. Pastor Anthony taught in Hosea. At the time, Israel had forsaken God. Their hands were filled with bloodshed. There was a lot of adultery. um, And they figured, well, if we do some sacrifices and religious rituals, we're going to be okay. God's like, no, that's not how it works. And the rest of that scripture is, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, if we know God, if we have a familiarity with him, if we walk with him, then we won't be murdering our brothers. Then we will be faithful to our spouses. Then we will try to honor God. In Jesus' time, let's bring it fast forward, the religious leaders showed no mercy but figured the rituals, the sacrifice, the meticulous tithes, the religious duties um, could bring them to salvation. Is it any different today in religion? How many do we know that uh, they will come on a Sunday morning or they'll get their, their fix for the, for the relig- religiosity, light candles, say prayers, smile, put a check in the basket? Hey, I'm good. We can do whatever we want for the rest of the week. That's what religion is. It's our feeble attempts to try to appease God through things. But God says, no, I want your heart. Take the walls down. I want to reach in there, and I want your heart. I gave you a heart. I set you out as a free moral agent, but I love you, and I want you to come back to me. Religion is just like a force field. We just give them outward externalities. The heart's not in there. If you think about it, the more mercy that they would have shown, mercy over sacrifice, the less they would have sinned against each other and against God, and the less they would have needed these sacrifices. Some of these sacrifices were done more than others, depend on how much you sinned, right? So I desire mercy over sacrifice, and it still holds true today. We need to do less in the, in the form of externalities, but give us our heart, and we need to show mercy, like he's shown mercy to us, Right? I could just picture God in, you know, in common language or a paraphrase or contemporary language looking down at us and saying, kids, play nicely with each other. You know, love each other. That's all I want you to do. That's what his word says. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John, now this is John the Baptist, came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So at this time, John the Baptist, we understand that he's probably still in prison at this time, and some of John's disciples haven't fully made the transition to Christ. 
They're still following much of the religious establishment's protocol of rote ritual instead of understanding completely the relationship with God. And Jesus answers, and he likens himself uh, by, like, to a groom. We know the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 picks this up. He speaks about the husband and the wife, and he speaks about the parallel between Christ and the church. So he picks up this, con- this concept, and he runs with it. Now, don't miss this. In this, everything that Jesus do, did was for a reason. Everything he said was for a reason. He likened, so the bridegroom, this is a wedding celebration. A wedding celebration is joyous, whereas fasting is associated with mourning, sadness, repentance, beseeching God in a crisis. But Jesus is saying, I'm here. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's another uh, you know, hash mark in the column of when, how many times Jesus equated himself with God. Could any of us here say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? I wouldn't dare say that. I'd be looking for the lightning bolt, you know what I'm saying? But Jesus could say that. I'm here. I'm among you. The bridegroom is here. It's a joyous celebration. So in other words, time is short. Eventually I will be taken away, but now... Uh, we need to celebrate. Now is a joyous time. Now we need to work in the fields. There will be a time of mourning and those associated with it when Jesus is removed from the earth. And we are in that time. We look forward to Christ coming back and receiving us. Now the irony is many want to find happiness in the things of the world. And listen, I don't, it's just what I hear. It's just what I, um, observations over time. There's many who will say, even as believers, you know, I, I don't want the rapture to come because... I want this to happen. I don't want the rapture to come because I want that to happen. They don't want the Lord to come back because there's things in this life that they either want to achieve or they want to be fulfilled by. See, when we say that, we don't truly understand God. We don't truly understand God when we do that. See, some think that God, even believers, is the eternal fun fire extinguisher, and that's really not true. I've never laughed so hard. I've never had so much joy since be, be, being a believer. Now, I'll tell you, it's funny, because at 1015, uh, and whoever wants to come into the office, we pray at 1015. You can all, you know, could be standing room only. I don't care. We had five uh, people in my office, and we were praying before service. And I had the door closed, and um, we're praying, and we're praying, and I'm hearing from this side, the ushers. They're laughing. I mean, they're just having such a good time, guys. You don't have to tone it down. It's okay. I'm not going there. Uh, and then I'm hearing from this ear <laughs> in the hallway, there's women and, and other people laughing and, and just hugging and saying hello. Um, you know, we laugh our way to a better marriage on uh, Saturday nights for three strands. But the lie is that when you become a, a Christian, you have to become a sourpuss. You can't have fun anymore. It's actually wrong. He said, I've never been so free. I've never had so much fun, so much joy since becoming a believer, right? It's, it's pretty good stuff. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So let's look at the literal explanation, and we'll look to the spiritual, and this is where we're going to end today. Um, you have a garment, right? And maybe it's been washed, and it's been worn for years, um, and it's, it's done shrinking, 
So you, you have some type of rip or a hole, and you go to put a patch on it. Well, that patch has to go through a process of, of uh, changing state and form until it becomes where it's going to just stay like that. So if you have an old garment and you put a patch on it, and you start to wash it and it's out in the sunlight, what's going to happen is it's going to shrink and it's going to pull from the old garment. And the old garment's weak as it is, it's going to start to rip it. Same thing with wineskins. They would use like animal hide, animal skins, and sew them up, and they would carry or uh, transport their wine in that, or use it uh, maybe in some ways to let the fermenting process take place. So if you have uh, new wine and a new wineskin, the new wineskin, the skin is flexible. So as the wine ferments and the gases expand, uh, this wineskin expands. It'll, it'll expand and contract with the, the gases and the new wine. But if you take new wine and put it into an old skin, the old skin is already done. You know, it could be years old, just like the, the material. There's the, the elasticity is gone out of it. So as the wine starts to ferment, there's going to be splits in that skin, and you're going to lose not only the skin, but the wine. It's going to ruin both. So there's your physical illustration. Let's look at the law and grace. Even they, they, they have certain connotations when you, when you listen to them. The law sounds very stern. Grace, that sounds very nice. So even in the sound, it's, and I'm sure that has nothing to do with it. But the point is that the law, <laughs> the law tells us it, it is stern. When we look at the law, we realize, I didn't know that I sinned until I looked at the law and it revealed my sin. Then I realize I'm not as good as I think I am. However, we're not saved by the law because we can't keep all of God's law. Jesus pointed that out. And even if we do uh, on the outside, uh, Jesus tells us that in our heart, if we think murder or adultery, that's just as you still broke the law. It's in your heart. We're sinners. We've rebelled against God. So we're not saved by the law. So we had to be saved by grace. But you see, grace and the law can't coexist. That's a problem. They don't work together. You know, there are some believers who uh, don't really understand grace, and they, they, they're tight. You ever meet somebody who's just wound too tight? You know, there are some believers like that. They're wound really tight, and they, you know, they have this look on their face, and there's furrowed eyebrows, and they're looking to pick, and they're looking to find fault. That's a legalistic Christian. They haven't really understand what grace means. I see a lot of laughing, so uh, <laughs> you know some people like that. And what happens is if, the, if grace is the new wine and it's expanding and it's dynamic, legalism and the law can't hold that new wine. It just doesn't work. The old covenant and the new covenant. Well, the old covenant was broken by who? God never goes back on his word. According to Jeremiah 31, it was broken by the children of Israel. So God says, okay, I'm going to make a new covenant. And this one, you won't even have to tell your neighbor, know the law, because it'll be written on your mind and on your hearts. This will be a new type of covenant where the desire to please God will be inside of us. It is the new covenant of grace, the new covenant of Jesus Christ. All the way back in the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31. We also see dead religion versus a work of the Spirit. The old skin can't contain the new wine, right? And it goes back to the whole thing about giving God our hearts. Dead religion, it's a routine, it's a ritual, it's what we do, it's what my parents have always done. But do you know the Lord? What do you mean? Do you have a relationship with God? Now you're getting weird, you're getting too religious. You know, I am a lifelong Baptist, or I'm a lifelong Calvary Chapelite, and everybody knows that Calvary Chapel has the best teachings. 
really. So the point is, it can become dead religion, right? Uh, The new wine is being saved by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit, a relationship with God through Christ, grace. And the question is, are we old skins or are we new skins? Are we old skins? Do, Do we want to be flexible and elastic and we want to have the ability to watch the Holy Spirit expand in my life? If I'm a new skin and I just see the Holy Spirit work in my life, you know, it, it's out, it's in, it's, it's amazing stuff. It's exciting, right? You have that flexibility, you have that elasticity. Now understand this, when you're a new skin, you're going to stretch and it's going to hurt sometimes and you may get spiritual stretch marks, but it's exciting. Grab onto the Holy Spirit and enjoy the ride. He's here, he's there, and I'm just along for the ride. It's exciting. And now you're probably saying, Pastor Joe, you're manic, Maybe, but I want to be a new wineskin. The question is, do you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for tying everything up in that 